has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in Tampa Grant, Michael Biden. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, 27-year veteran of the NYPD. Tonight, we're going to talk about a sort of breaking information, not uh, you know smoking gun information, but breaking information in regards to the search warrant that was conducted at the parents' home of Brian Koberger on December 30th. Now, everyone's been waiting to hear what the results of this search warrant are and what was recovered and what does it does it mean and and how is this evidence going to affect the case and what was a little bit surprising to me and we're going to go over it in much more detail is that they really they only uh collected nine items from the home and i would have expected much more evidence than that although they they knew what they were looking for and very clearly, they they invoiced the items that they were they were looking for. However, tomorrow there's expected to be more information from this search search warrant uh, given to us in regards to the car. What were the results of the vehicle search? That infamous white Hyundai. Uh, did they collect blood swabs? We may not know because. They had to do a deep, deep forensic dive into that car because, look, he had over a month, over a month to clean that car, to clean it with alcohol, to try to kill any potential uh, blood stains or any uh, forensic evidence that may have wound up in that car. But you talk to anyone who's in a crime scene capacity, an evidence collector, and they'll tell you no matter how hard they clean that there's potential that there will be forensic evidence from that scene in that car. And that's what we're hoping for. We talk about a million times Locard's principle of exchange. And Brian Koberger, if he was in that crime scene, 1122 King Road, and he left something from himself there, he also took something out from that crime scene and brought it right into his car. And that's what we're hoping for, because that was is what we could consider what we always refer to on this show as smoking gun evidence. But with me tonight is a, is a fan and a subscriber favorite, uh, retired NYPD sergeant and professor and straight out of the Bronx, Mike Geary. How you doing tonight, Mike? Hey, Billy. Thank you. Good to have, thank you for having me on. It's uh, it's always great to have you. I think uh, the folks love you here. And, uh, you know, Mike, we've been, we've been sort of waiting because uh, we know – there's a gag order from uh, the judge in Idaho in regards to any information going out from law enforcement, from the prosecutor or from the defense, or even from the family's attorney. Right. There's a gag order. They're not allowed to release anything. So folks may ask, well, then how does this judge from Pennsylvania release all of this evidentiary information and with the gag order live in Idaho. And I'm going to let you answer that, Mike. 
All right, Billy, the gag order, as you know, was put into place by the uh, trial judge assigned to the case. And it was a great thing to do to stop any kind of speculation. Um, you don't really, as a trial judge, you have to give the uh, defendant the most fair trial that you possibly can. That's their due process, right? So you don't want there to be any speculation about uh, evidence that may be out in the public domain, you know, months before the trial. That wouldn't be un that wouldn't be fair. And even that, you're not even sure if all of all of the information that's considered evidence is actually going to be admitted as evidence at the trial. So you don't want any potential jury pool to be tainted a little bit by all of the information floating out there, you know, being dissected by the news media. I think with the Pennsylvania case here with the judge allowing the release of the information from the uh, search warrant um, back on December 29th, uh, uh, December 30th, I, I think the reason for that is um, it probably was a pre-planned type of release that they would release this information within 60 days. And uh, number one, I think also number two, uh, the second reason would be that um, the judge in Pennsylvania is not subject, you know, to any sort of jurisdiction by the uh, from the judge in Idaho. So um, therefore, that judge would feel free to um, probably just go along with the uh, pre what I think is a pre planned release of the information. And um, I think that's really about it. I don't see any other reason why they would do it. I'm surprised they did, considering the gag order uh, being in place. But I think it just comes down to jurisdiction and the Pennsylvania judge saying, this is my order. I, I'm releasing it and, and that's it. So I, I guess that's not out of the ordinary at all. But I tried to sort of anticipate yeah. what our subscribers or our fans would ask. And I thought that was a very viable question. Oh, yeah. They would want to know why would the judge in another jurisdiction uh, release information when there's a gag order in Idaho? And you answered that pretty well. Let's oh, just okay. go no, over, Mike. Okay. Sure, Mike. Go ahead. I'm just thinking just real quick, as, we, as you just mentioned that at the very end, I'm thinking also probably when the, ju the judge in Pennsylvania anticipating the release of the information in 60 days, he probably put that order down that this will be in, uh, released in 60 days. However, the gag order at that point hadn't yet been put into effect. So that could possibly be a part of the explanation also. Very well. Very good, Mike. Now, there, there was nine items taken out on December 30th. And if you can go to your uh, notes there. The first was a, a defiant uh, silver flashlight, four, four medical-style gloves, a white Arizona Jean Company large T-shirt, a champion with a Washington Cougars, a large black sweatshirt, a pair of black and white size 13 Nike shoes, a pair of black Under Armour socks, Under Armour black large shorts, Under Armour black boxers large, and one buckle swab of Brian Koberger's cheek, inside the cheek, and that's how they collected um, the DNA from Brian Koberger. Yeah, I think that surprised a lot of people that they would expect that you go to this gentleman's house uh, in Pennsylvania and arrest him. You followed him uh, on a trek of 1,200 miles. He's suspected of killing four people. Um, they're doing you know, a search of his home, his temporary home in Washington on the campus. And you know, they, didn't, they didn't seem to grab a lot of material there. 
And here you are at his actual residence, full-time residence, permanent residence, if you will, in Pennsylvania. You would imagine they would have taken every, like like the Grinch, they would have taken, taken everything out of his room, his toothbrush, uh, socks, old yearbooks, everything and everything, just put into a big bag and just truck and just haul it away. But you and I have talked about this before we went on the air. They're looking for very specific items. And, and when you look down at the list, it's items that would pertain to being out, trying to hide in, in like a dark outfit late at night and having a flashlight. Everything he wore, we know from um, DM, was, was black. It seemed appeared to be to her to be black. And most likely that's what he was wearing, was black uh, shirt, pants, maybe some sort of jacket. It could have been one of those dicky kind of outfits with the black mask. So they're looking specifically for dark clothing. They're not, if he has a Hawaiian shirt, you know, with palm trees all over it, they're not going to take that. What they're looking for is dark items. And, and you can see um, right then and there, they know what they're looking for. You've done this sort of thing, Billy. You know exactly what you're looking for 99% of the time when you're doing this sort of thing. Absolutely. And one of the most important things, of course, is the fact that size 13 shoe. Mm -hmm. Now, they took a uh, a shoe uh, footprint, a bloody footprint from the um, from 1122 King Road, which is the scene of the homicide. A van shoe. Yeah, a van shoe that had a diamond shape. Right. But... Say they couldn't find those shoes, he threw them out, discarded them somehow, mm -hmm. but they're size 13. Now they show that this Nike shoe, Nike sneaker, whatever it is, is a size 13. That's not the most common size. That's a pretty damn big foot. Don't you you have to have a big foot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a big foot. So if you show that that matches, again, we what we speak about all the time, circumstantial evidence. Pile mm -hmm. that circumstantial evidence high, and it really works for the uh, prosecution, absolutely. Yeah, every little bit helps. Um, you know, if you can't find, like you say, the van shoes uh, with with maybe a little trace of blood on them, or you can't even find them, even if they were perfectly cleaned by Koberger, you know, if he kept them, you know, um, every little bit helps. So, yeah, you know, there's a lot of people who have, you know, sizes other than 13. Very few people have sizes, you know, that large. You've got to be pretty tall person and it just gives the jury you know you're going to use you're going to try to get that in as evidence to just show to the jury we have a very tall person walking past dm bushy eyebrows mask um we've got this the uh, uh van shoe print that we brought up through like the luminol um and if you if that's about a size 13 and then you've got the size 13 shoe you know it's not absolute slam dunk evidence but it is circumstantial evidence, bit by bit by bit by bit. You know, Mike, with the whole identification from DM, seeing this male walk by with a mask on, mm -hmm. she identified him as uh, tall. Well, mm -hmm. five, she said 5'10", thin, an athletic build, not muscular. Right. Um, now, I, you know, I taught um, when I was on the police department, besides my duties in Manhattan North Homicide, I would teach at the criminal investigation course and I taught identification procedure. And that was lineup show ups and, and how to get someone identified. And one of the things I would always teach the detectives was, especially in lineups, 
it was okay in a lineup. We see that, you know, TV has sort of owned the lineups. They teach the public, this is how lineups are done, and they're always wrong, you know. But in the NYPD procedure, if a victim couldn't identify a suspect in a lineup, we would ask them, would it help if they one by one walked up to the window? And you got to realize uh, it's one-way glass. She could see in, but they can't see out. And she would say, yes. And when the person sometimes would walk up, we'd have to do all six. There would be one suspect and five fillers. And one at a time, you'd say, number one, you'd have to scream it because it wasn't like TV. We didn't have the intercom system. This is the NYPD. We had thick cinder block. We had to yell really loud. <laughs> number, <laughs> number one, please stand up and approach the window. Stand profile and please step to the, then, you know, uh, do a profile straight ahead, then turn to the side. Okay, number one, you could sit down. Number two, same thing. Number three, same, and to all the way one through six. And sometimes, because the person would approach the window, the victim could not just see the physical features, but watch the way the person moved and their demeanor and their gait. And that sometimes would aid in the identification. So I wonder, I really, really wonder, even though Brian Kohlberger was wearing a mask, are there certain things about his gait, about his physicality, about the way he looked, about his eyebrows, all of those things together that really she could say, that's him. And would that be considered a good identification or would that just be circumstantial evidence? I mean, I think at that point, it's, it's still considered circumstantial. I would imagine it's really just considered circumstantial. Um, she actually did not see the um, crime take place. She, she sees if, if she gets, you know, that fact that that is a Kohlberger, if they ever did actually a lineup, and, and I doubt they will, but it's seeing someone coming in or leaving at that point, that would be really strong circumstantial evidence. I mean, it's circumstantial, not direct, but it is absolutely probably the best circumstantial evidence next to DNA and next to phone records that you can get. If she if she could have identified them, you and I know from working on the street and you also working in homicide, when people talk about eyewitnesses or perhaps the victims of robberies and assaults, like you know, they are excited. They see something unexpected. There's this violent encounter. And they, they, it, they believe that the perpetrator sometimes is much larger than they are. If you're being beaten down on the street and somebody's taking your pocketbook or somebody's going through your pockets and they're threatening you and you're seeing fists coming at your face, that person is going to appear to you to be six feet tall. Um, here we have DM and she sees what we believe to be uh, Brian Colbert burger walking past um she got the eyebrows which is great um if she I, we're not sure because it was very dark and maybe there was some ambient lighting where she could actually see something of the face you know and she got to see the eyes um it would be wonderful if they did a, a lineup and she said yeah he walks like that that was the guy i could see him walk I don't know as a as a district attorney that I would go down that ro road right now. I think they have so much on this guy. Um, it would be great. It would be like the pièce de résistance, but 
<laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't try it. We taught you and me and Phil and Mike Vecchio. We talked about this point and like, I'm not sure if I want to go there. Well, we also spoke about the fact that um, she heard a voice say, it's OK, I'm going to help you now. That easy to eliminate that was that was it a male voice? Yes. Mm -hmm. Was it Ethan Chapin's voice? No. Then it had to be the perpetrator's right. voice, right? right? So we spoke about even doing a voice lineup, but we felt that that's such a risky thing to do because if she cannot ID the voice or she mis-IDs the voice, that is really strong right. evidence it's for the, the perpetrator. Nail in the coffin for Kohlberger. I mean, and, you know, you just throw away the key right then and there, along with the DNA evidence and the electronic evidence. But if you don't nail it down with a perfect match right there, then you are handing the defense uh, reasonable doubt, perhaps in one juror's mind, on a silver platter. It's like you'd be given a gift to the defense. And it's a high-risk gamble. You know, it's one throw of the dice. If you get it right, boom. But if you don't, you're screwed at trial time. You know? Absolutely. Let me play a little bit of this just to... The court documents reveal what led up to the arrest of accused killer Brian Koberger, who has since been charged in the deadly University of Idaho quadruple stabbings. A search warrant unsealed on Tuesday reveals that Pennsylvania authorities began surveillance on Koberger and his family on December 28th. That was the same day Pennsylvania State Police were contacted by the FBI and Moscow, Idaho Police for assistance in the investigation. On November 13, 2022, four students were found stabbed to death in their off-campus home. The story captivated the nation for weeks as few leads were released, except that a white Hyundai Elantra was a vehicle of interest in the case. But on December 30th, Koberger was arrested at his parents' home in Albrightsville, Pennsylvania. Court documents show investigators were ordered to search and seize Koberger's 2015 Elantra, as well as any property belonging to the victims. A handwritten list shows nearly 10 items investigators seized at Koberger's parents' home, including a flashlight, medical-style gloves, and multiple items of clothing. The warrant outlines dozens more items to be searched and seized, including Koberger's DNA, any electronic devices and their metadata, and any documents relating to the murder scene. According to court documents, Koberger arrived to his parents' home on December 16th. Surveillance videos showed Koberger walking around near his parents' home on December 27th. The following day, investigators say he traveled across Monroe County before heading back to his parents' house. Two days later, the search warrant was executed and Koberger was taken into custody. At the time of his arrest, Koberger was a Ph.D. candidate at Washington State University, about 15 minutes from the University of Idaho. Weeks after the murders, he and his father drove from Pullman, Washington, back to their home in the Poconos. Body camera video of a traffic stop during that trip was later released, showing the pair in Indiana on their way back to Pennsylvania in the white Hyundai. Goldberger appeared in Pennsylvania court last month before being extradited to Idaho. Right now, Koberger is being held in the Lataw County Jail in Idaho. He's due back in court on June 26th for a preliminary hearing. So there you have it. Uh, you know, so, such interesting stuff. The other thing is that during this whole uh, trip to Pennsylvania, he was being surveilled. 
Mm-hmm. He was being surveilled. They talk about from the 28th on, but he was also being followed by certain police as he passed through certain jurisdictions. I'm sure they were requested by the FBI or the Idaho State Police or the Moscow Police. Could you? Did they just accidentally pull him over? I don't think so. I don't think that was an accident. And you know what? I was amazed at when you think of, you look at his car. That one shot we just watched, uh, he was pulled over. You don't see hardly anything in the car. I mean, the camera does a quick scan of the back seat. I don't see, I mean, if I'm traveling cross country and I have no intention of going back, wouldn't the car be loaded up? Might there even be like a U-Haul? It didn't seem like there was much property in that car whatsoever. Yeah, he might have been either traveling very light and had like a duffel bag or two thrown into the trunk. And that would be about it. But, you know, you'd be putting stuff in the back seat. Um, It could be possible that up until that time, despite his altercations with his professors. um, Well, I'm sorry, December 17th, I think, is when they actually made the final decision or something like that. So he must have known when he was taking that cross country jaunt with his dad that he was already gone. Uh, so it wasn't like he wasn't sure if he was going to leave stuff back there. He might just be somebody who doesn't have much attachment to things either, uh, to clothing, to knickknacks, to anything that, you know, you and I would have a picture, albums, musical instruments. He just probably travels really light. Maybe he got rid of a bunch of stuff. Maybe uh, he took stuff. To a, to, the, to a local dump in Washington, maybe to mask throwing away some items that he wanted to throw out that he thought may have had blood on them. He may have done that. He may have really been paranoid enough to think that I got to throw out just about everything because I've heard of low cards, you know, um, principle. Principle of exchange. Yeah, principle <laughs> of exchange. I always say theory, but it's the principle. So he might have actually tossed out a whole lot of stuff in his paranoia about getting caught. Other than that, I'm not sure, but yeah, he travels light. You know, Mike, one of the things that's very interesting and a lot of folks have asked this question is that the touch DNA on the sheath, initially that was identified through his father's DNA, familial Mm -hmm. DNA, which they collected, I believe, out of the garbage and they were able to identify his father, which in turn was enough for them to say, you know, this is this is the guy. But subsequent to that, they took his DNA. In fact, in the search warrant, mm-hmm. it says they could take four swabs. Right. It's interesting that they on the evidence they collected, it says they only took one swab. And I think you have you have an interesting theory on that, Mike. What was your theory? Yeah. Battering this back and forth, you know, uh, before the show began, uh, I think probably what they're doing is they have taken four swabs they're going to send it to three different labs and the fourth swab is just going to be kept you know in in proper storage facility uh for further reference occasionally perhaps in the future for any sort of appeals or anything like that so that if there's ever any question by the defense or by any expert about the viability of how the dna was taken stored tested analyzed you know, you know, that sort of thing that they would have one fresh, pristine sample still sitting, you know, uh, in storage. That's the only thing I could think of. 
probably is what they might be thinking. You know, Mike, one of the things that we're going to find out soon, and I'm trying to get some really um, qualified uh, genealogists on the show, uh, is that the whole CODIS system run by the FBI is an antiquated system that's probably going to be outdated very, very soon. And the question to that, and I, that's why I can't wait to, if I get, I'm trying, I'm, I'm not going to say who it is, but I'm trying to get these very uh, competent genealogists on the show who are in academia and I have them explain this whole uh, new science of genetic genealogy, which does not really use the, the same techniques that is criminal DNA is used and stored and given to the FBI and put into the CODIS system. They use something called SNAP, and I, I'm not going to pretend to know what it means, but I'm going to have people come on here who's going to explain that. And then they build family trees, and then they somehow figure out through these family trees, oh, th this person is a criminal in this family. And, you know, I I'm oversimplifying it, but that is why down the road, the whole CODIS system may be thrown out the window. You know, you, when you look back, DNA, the first case of, of, with a DNA conviction was in England back in like the mid-1980s with a, uh, a guy named Colin, Colin Pitchfork. I think he was a uh, like child molester rapist. And they, you needed a lot of blood. The, the, the DNA science was developed in England. And so he was the first one uh, to be convicted in the world on, on DNA evidence. It comes to America. It's written about in journals. And at a, at a, after a couple of years, it becomes acceptable theory. Um, and yeah, you have uh, you know protocols developed to analyze it based on the British system. Uh, it comes into uh, trials all the time. We know it's absolutely reliable. And it seems to be that, okay, that's where we're at. And then you get uh, DNA uh, evidence after the 9-11 attacks. Uh, Phil talked about you know the, the advancement in the science is just leaps and bounds. You've got touch DNA, doesn't even involve uh, blood. Uh, it could be just finger, uh, you know, uh, old skin cells on your fingertips or any part of your arm or any part, you know, any part of your body. No blood involved, nothing like that. From a hair follicle even, you know, totally revolutionized. And, and I remember seeing an article uh, in National Geographic about, you know, people looking for ancestral DNA and you trying to use it to, to like, look back at uh, human evolution in some depending on this on how they analyze it they can predict uh the actual like you know hair color or eye color of the person who's given the sample it's just remarkable and even that is getting older now it's just you need to be ha have a brand new degree in this in this sort of thing uh within the past couple of years you got a degree in you know, DNA technology back in the 1990s, that's ancient history. It's just remarkable. Well, it was Barbara Butcher, I believe, who said that because of 9-11, mm -hmm. um, DNA advanced three generations. And that is like just incredible. Mm -hmm. So three generations, because of how much work they did during 9-11 on identifying all those bodies, that it, it was able to... Um, to advance three whole generations. I just want to uh, play a, a bit of this. We'll put this on the screen. 
Um, actually, I'm not going to play this now. I'm going to remove it. But um, it, it just just totally incredible that 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 occurred. And when I when I talk about um, you know when you talk about DNA technology, you use these fancy letters RFLP, restriction fragment length polymorphism. Right away, you lose everyone. PCR, yeah. uh, polymerase chain reaction. STR, short tandem repeats. Guess what? The genetic genealogists use none of those. So what's going to happen down the road? It seems like civilians have advanced this science further than law enforcement. So guess what? Law enforcement better get trained by the civilians in this because it's it, this is the wave. It's not just the wave of the future. It's here already. It's here. And like, I, you know, if the FBI wants to run it, they better start getting trained in it. And also local police departments, they better start getting trained in genetic genealogy. Right. And also to be able to analyze it once, you know, collecting it, preserving it for analysis, perhaps the FBI will farm it out to um, uh, certain labs that, you know, deal exclusively with law enforcement, something like that. But the protocols for the handling of it, the analysis, the collection, the interpretation of the evidence, of the DNA evidence, that's where it's at. That's where it's going. And the good thing about that, like the um, electronic evidence that we get with the ge geofencing, with the cell phone technology, it's unemotional. And, and that's the wonderful part about it. It's unemotional. It's reliable. It's not subject to personal emotions. It's not subject to, you know, um, any other human failings, memory or anything like that. So long as you get the information within a particular amount of time, for instance, DNA does degrade. If you get a body, maybe that's not found for a while in the woods and it's subject, you know, to all kinds of degradation or the sample is so old. But, you know, this the technology and the interpretation, it's. It's just absolutely, it's, you know, 99.9999% accurate in, in all in all respects. And this gives juries the ability to hang their hat and say yes or no, you know, um, on that one issue. So if you've got your district attorney and you got a homicide case or a rape case or a serious assault case and you got a DNA sample and it comes back as you suspect at that point, you got, you got to be looking to the defense attorney saying, look, you want to plea bargain this because this is a slam dunk. I got this. You know, it's circumstantial. Remember, it's, it is always circumstantial evidence, but it is the most absolute reliable circumstantial evidence that you could ever get. Absolutely. Let's play a little bit of this. Murdering four University of Idaho students. A search warrant unsealed by a Pennsylvania court today details the items investigators took from Brian Koberger and from his family home in Pennsylvania. The documents show police took a flashlight, four medical style gloves, a t-shirt and a black sweatshirt. They also took a pair of size 13 Nike shoes, a pair of black socks, black shorts and boxers, and one cheek swab. The warrant was signed December 29th by a judge in Monroe County, Pennsylvania, and was executed at 1.30 a.m. the next day. Officials say they plan to release more search warrants tomorrow for 28-year-old Brian Koberger's car 
and the home in Monroe County. Koberger is accused of murdering Madison Mogan, Kaylee Gonsalves, Zana Kernodal, and Ethan Chapin back in November. He is charged with four counts of first-degree murder and burglary. A preliminary hearing is scheduled for June 26th. So that is, uh, that's what we can count on tomorrow. There's going to be more information regarding the vehicle. And as you, as we noted before, there were numerous other items on that search warrant that we didn't go over just now, but it'll be exciting to see that all this other evidence. Now you got to realize also, you know, I, we, Mike, we said from the very beginning, we believe and we've had experts on the show, experts on Duty Ron's show, and one of the most respected experts, Ed Wallace, of course, a first-grade detective from the NYPD, has processed probably, you know, a thousand crime scenes. Barbara Butcher, to me, she is the gold standard of medical legal investigators across the nation. Um, and she said, and, and Ed Wallace said, there's probably a 99% chance that Brian Koberger cut himself during the commission of these murders and left his blood DNA in that scene. Now, we're all expecting that, but that, again, and we talk about smoking gun, that is smoking gun evidence. And if they have that, you know, you never say never, but I think it's so powerful. I, I don't see how any defense could, uh, could beat that. Yeah, you got to take a look at the... Um... Yeah, they tr took a tremendous amount of information, uh, uh, evidence from the crime scene itself uh, back in Idaho. You've got, you know, items taken from his uh, apartment in Washington. You've got items taken from the arrest location in Pennsylvania. Tomorrow we're going to see more items taken from the car and, you know, maybe the trunk of the car, the interior of the car, that sort of thing. Uh, so there's going to be a tremendous amount of information. The only thing is, though, we don't know yet what the uh, results of any blood analysis are, hair analysis, you know, that sort of thing. By now, you know, chronologically, by now, the FBI knows, the state trooper, the state police know, the Moscow police know, but we won't know. We'll just be given, you know, a taste of what they've got. And that's a great thing. And I think it will really, really reassure the public that even before we get the results of the analysis of the material from all three places that this was a well-run operation, professionally done, um, done to the highest standards uh, in any, as any, in, as you would see in any homicide, these were professionals doing their job the way that they're supposed to do it. And the public should be really reassured that, uh, that, this crime scene and the arrest location and is Washington's uh, uh, State University Department were thoroughly examined uh, properly and um, should give people a lot of comfort in that. Absolutely. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you like real crime stories from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. Myself and my co-hosts, uh, Professor Mike Geary, retired NYPD sergeant, Mike Geary also Along the way, just picked up a law degree some way. He, he actually did attend classes. And we, we have Phil Grimaldi, a retired NYPD detective straight out of Brooklyn. So if you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and ring that bell. Make sure you hit that like button, you know. 
And um, if you want to support us uh, financially, we have a Patreon with three different levels. We also have a YouTube channel membership with Countem, five different levels. And you see the folks in the green font in our channel. They're part of our uh, Police Off the Cuff YouTube family. And we really appreciate our subscribers, our fans, our friends, and they're a great support uh, to this show. You know, Mike, I want to go back to the um, the statement, Exhibit A, it's called in the warrant. And Mike, watch your, um, your mic's a little exploding, so don't uh, drop the papers. It's okay. exploding right now. Um, he, uh, Brett Payne, who is the case detective from Idaho, and what really shocked me was he has less than four years on the job. And we were just talking about how this is an extremely professional investigation even though they got a beat down by the press, they got a beat down by the community, they got a beat down by one of the parents of the victims, which we can't even criticize him because we don't know what we would do if that was our child. But it turned out, with all the criticism that they endured during this, that they were right on. They were straight on. They were doing the right thing. And keeping the facts to themselves is the right thing to do. You can't leak out all the information because it hurts the investigation. And we've been hearing a lot of um, broadcast stations, um, broadcasting material that really wasn't vetted and saying that the information comes from a, a, um, a person close to the investigation, an investigator close to the investigation. So obviously there's leaks. So we could see even in this Exhibit A, from uh, Corporal uh, Brett Payne, mm -hmm. a lot of the things that were rumors were actually true. So someone must have been reading right from the damn affidavit to some of these um, news reporters and some of these broadcasters because it's pretty accurate. Um, and what what in the in the exhibit A, the statement of Brett Payne, he, he goes over being walked through the crime scene at eleven twenty two King Road. You want to comment on that, Mike? It was it was well done, and I think that that's something that people should take comfort in. Um, that the entire time of in the investigation, from the time uh, November thirteenth all the way through till the time that uh, Brian Koberger was arrested, you know, it was a tremendous shock to everyone that there was this arrest made after six weeks. In the beginning, people were thinking this is going to be a cold case after like three weeks of, of work. And in six weeks, they had the guy arrested. They had him identified pretty much. They kind of knew who they were looking for, you know, much earlier on uh, through uh, cell phone technology. It's because that, that's going to take, you know, a couple of weeks to get. You've got the cameras on different light poles and at the uh, gas station or automat that he drove by early on. You've got the Washington State Police um, being asked to find out whether or not there's any sort of uh white Hyundai in the area, and they find out that there's a white Hyundai um, registered to uh, Brian Koberger. Mike, just to, just, Mike, just to interrupt you, that was fantastic work. No matter what no, anyone yeah. says, Excellent. Finding, finding that car was a needle in a haystack. Mm -hmm. They did an unbelievable job, and partly it's from using the public, using the media. We say the media can be your biggest friend or your mm -hmm. biggest enemy. Put it out there. We're looking for a white Hyundai. And I remember when they first released it and they were saying, oh, it's just a witness. Well, and I was like, no, that's the perp. That's the perp's car. 100 <laughs> You did say that. Yeah, I did say that. And you did say that. it absolutely was. And 
Now you've got it out there and everyone's looking to this white car. And don't you know that a security guard at Washington State University, a little bit of a detective in him, starts doing his own detective work. And guess what? He finds the car. That's cooperative police investigation. That's fantastic. That guy should get he should get a raise and he should get a, a, a reward because or an, an award. You know, the guy should be decorated that he really helped solve this investigation. And and, and that was tremendous. Trem that was so important. Let's just put it that way. You know, I'm thinking about when we, we just talk about the white Hyundai and I can't wait for the uh, information to be released tomorrow. That's going to be really give you uh, some comfort to see what they find and just, you know, for the public, you know, you and I know kind of how these things go a little bit, um, even if it's in a different jurisdiction. But the public, you know, should know that how professional these guys have been. And I think when you look back and you realize when they first put out the bulletin about looking for the white Honda, a Hyundai, I was wondering myself whether or not it was they were just trying to dot every I cross every T. And you said, no, no, absolutely. Right off the bat. This is the this is the car and the and the driver is the perpetrator. Um, the only thing I could think of looking also just taking a look at that from a different angle is that perhaps perhaps they threw that out there to the public just to see if the owner who they already strongly suspected was the perp would come forward thinking they were just being asked to come forward as a witness and maybe see if you can get them in a very comfortable position where you may question them and maybe they would give some information like self-incriminating statement or something like that. Maybe they're playing a little poker with Brian Koberger. I'm not sure, but I was just thinking of that as we've been going over the, all of this information the last hour or so. You know, Mike, g going back to the car and people are asking questions, I, I, Wall Stretcher official, I'll just read his. Did it shock you that they narrowed down BK's car out of 2,700 white Elantras based on a description of bushy eyebrows and touch DNA that had yet to be matched anything? No, and that's not what happened. What happened was his car, well, besides the eyeball witness, his car was seen on video, and that's not a mistake. It's a video canvas being done purposefully by the investigators seen going back and forth around that house and parking, ultimately parking behind that house. So they knew this. Well, I don't know how quickly they got that um, video and how quickly they were able to decipher it and watch it, because all of this stuff we can talk about now, this stuff takes hours and hours and days and days to analyze. It just doesn't happen. Boom. And then, of course, the woman in the gas station reports that she sees a white Hyundai Elantra on their video speeding by. All of that stuff you have to put together. That's why it's called investigation. It doesn't happen in seconds, you know. And then they put that together and they put that, put it out to the public. We're looking for a, height, a white Hyundai Elantra. Now the car is going towards Pullman, passing that gas station. And some security guard from, you know, Washington State University says, let me go look and see how many white Hyundai Elantras are registered at this school. And boom, he finds the owner of this car. That's great cooperation, great investigation. That's what investigation is, is connecting the dots 
as simple as that sounds. It's connecting the dots. And we can all sit here and critique it now. But, you know, that's why they used to call detectives gumshoes, because they wear out pairs of shoes doing investigations. Now you're just on the phone most of the time. But they used to physically get out into the community and talk to people. They still do that, not as much as they used to. But all of this, we can't play it down and say, oh, it was this was easy or that was easy. And then all of this stuff is interconnected. We marry the white Honda to the cell phone information. And we spoke about day one or day two after this happened, something called geofencing. And Duty Ron, last week I was on a show with a woman named Tiffany, who's a genius at this stuff. And she explained geofencing to us. And she explained all the cell phone data. And then after the fact, did his cell phone hook up to the Wi-Fi? We don't know that yet. That possibly could be. And if that's the case, you know, I say smoking gun too much, but that is potentially another another smoking gun. Yeah, Mike. Yeah, the uh, the the pace of the investigation was rapid, considering you've got you know four uh, young people slaughtered. In this house, the whole entire house is, is a uh, a crime scene. You've got, and it was, it wasn't, uh, it was there was eight hours by the time the police actually first arrived there, the first responders. Um, you've got multiple agencies. Thank goodness, the Moscow PD captain uh, uh, chief brought the uh, Idaho State Police in within that very first day or within twenty four hours. Um, you've got the cooperation later on with Washington State. The FBI comes in because probably they were called by the Idaho State Police Investigations Unit. And the pace was rather fast. Um, no, the public wasn't told anything because there's a chance that the perpetrator who gets like any like any sort of violent crime like this, the perpetrator might believe that they've gotten away with it. You want their guard down. You don't want them thinking, I got to start ditching evidence or I got to start washing my car. Um, you hope they're not thinking along those lines. And so you don't put a lot out there. Little leaks may be strategically done, but, uh, you know, it, they work really fast. I'm, you and I were talking about how crazy it was for the uh, media to say, is this going to be a cold case? And they're talking about, is it possibly going to be a cold case after only like four weeks? And that, and the fact that they had them identified within within like three weeks and they got all the information, uh, the cell phone information and that sort of thing. Um, they got all the pictures, uh, the geofencing, and then they go track them down and they get them within six weeks. That was remarkably quick. But those are 24 hour days, seven days a week. You know, nobody's going home, you know, uh, and it was a dedicated uh, job by a number of different agencies all working together. It was a it was a beautiful thing, and it all worked out really well. You know, Mike, I have to read this comment just because Rosemary Jarvis, thank you so much, got here late and didn't catch your guest name. Tell him I think he's great too, but you're the best. <laughs> I, needed, I, I needed that for my ego. You know, I needed that. We got Lieutenant Pete. We got Lieutenant Peter Pranzo, Harlem Raiders in the house. And if Lieutenant Pete's in the house, we know Richella's not far behind. And uh, it's great to have them uh, as such supporters of this show. A great support. Um, you know, as Mike was saying, we can't say enough. Like, during this case, I even talked to a lot of people in law enforcement that didn't, uh, weren't following this case, but heard about that whole thing about 
after six weeks, they're saying, oh, should they take this case away from them? It's not solved yet. Uh, should they give it to the FBI? Should they do? And, you know, some they have no concept of how difficult it is to solve a murder. No, nonetheless, for a quadruple murder, this a quadruple murder almost never happens. I mean, on the street, if someone sprays a corner, that's not the same thing as this. Four students murdered in their beds at knife point. Uh, good kids, you know, 20, 21 years old. It just, it doesn't happen. I've never investigated a quadruple murder. I never investigated a triple. Doubles were even rare. We'd have double murders and every other type of murder, the gamut, baby murders, you know, husbands killing wives, wives killing husbands, brothers killing brothers. We had that one time in a two, three over over drugs a brother went and shot his brother right in the head right on the corner 100th street and first day i always remember that like really killed his brother over you know it we talk about when people do drugs or sell drugs they lose their soul right and that's that's 100 percent correct you know mike with this whole statement by the um catching detective might that be like a probable cause for the um is that what the Pennsylvania judge needed in order to okay this warrant? This was like a the statement of Brett Payne was the probable cause he needed to issue this warrant. Want to speak upon that? Yeah, Brett Payne is the is he's his official rank is corporal. He's the detective. He's a lead investigator for the Moscow Police Department in this quadruple homicide. And now he is the lead detective, so he's coordinating uh, all of his efforts. With, uh, from Moscow PD, uh, with uh, the FBI, getting tremendous technical assistance. Absolutely. You know, uh, he's not the only one working on the case. He's, there's numerous detectives from uh, uh, the Idaho State Police. You got FBI technicians, FBI agents working on it. He's helping coordinate things. He put together a tremendous affidavit, a probable cause affidavit, in support of an arrest warrant for Koberger. And we saw that that was released shortly after Kohlberger's arrest, uh, because he established tremendously strong probable cause. And so that led the judge to believe that, yeah, he agreed that there was probable cause. We're going to arrest um, Brian. Yeah, here's an authorization to arrest Brian Kohlberger. And we thought really the thing that tipped the scale uh, in, the, in law enforcement's favor at the time was the DNA. It was the very end of the affidavit. And it said that we did it from DNA and he, it comes back as a match to uh, someone in his, a male in his family uh, to about 99.998%, you know, uh, certain. Then that affidavit also it works in support of the search warrant right here. We got the results of that. The search warrant uh, for the Washington State University Department that Kohlberger lived in because you've already established that he is a suspect. In a, in, a, in a quadruple homicide, you have an, enough to give uh, for an arrest warrant. And obviously, an arrest warrant is based, an arrest is based on a probable cause. A search warrant is also based on probable cause. So uh, the corporal's work was good enough to be, uh, to be support the affidavit, was the supporting affidavit for the um, uh, uh, search warrant in his, in Washington State home. It is also part and parcel of the uh, search warrant. It supports the search warrant because, again, probable cause it supports the search warrant for uh the Kohlberger's residence in Pennsylvania and so you have this tremendous amount of body of work done by by the corporal and it supports so far 
all of the uh, all of the uh, searches, uh, the two two residences and the arrest warrant. I am absolutely certain that when we get the information from the car about the car, the search of the car, you, again you're going to see the same thing. You're going to see uh, the corporal's affidavit. Uh, it is the one that supports the uh, uh, the request for the search of the vehicle and being signed off on by the Pennsylvania judge. And so this tremendous work and it's textbook. This is how criminal investigations are supposed to be done. And you've seen this yourself. Uh, not all criminal investigations are done this well, but they had tremendous interagency cooperation. And this is the result of it. 100%. And we're also um, concerned with, and Pennsylvania was concerned with, everyone was concerned with, was and or is Brian Koberger a serial killer? He certainly exhibited a lot of characteristics of a serial killer. However, they've done a deep dive in the state of Pennsylvania to see if any open homicides fit the modus operandi of Brian Koberger. And they've come up empty thus far. Look, they have to look more than just in Pennsylvania. They have to look across the country. But as we said, he certainly has characteristics of a serial killer. Uh, so that's that door is still open. Although in Pennsylvania, they say that uh, they've done a deep dive and they, they don't see anything in that general area. You know, we, Mike, I know you've mentioned before, not many people are that sympathetic to Brian Koberger's parents. Right. However, I would imagine that they knew nothing about this. They knew, I mean, they had to know that their son maybe was a little bit off but many people know their kids are off and they try to just support them and love them. But this was early on in this investigation. I just want to play a little bit of this. Uh, and this is the parents talking right after he was arrested. Of four college friends in Idaho, the parents of 28-year-old Brian Kohlberger are speaking out, writing, First and foremost, we care deeply for the four families who have lost their precious children, adding, we will love and support our son and brother. We have fully cooperated with law enforcement agencies in an attempt to seek the truth and promote his presumption of innocence. How are they feeling about all the things that they're reading about their son? They're trying to stay off of the media. What they're hearing is not the Brian they know and love. Uh, so it's really out of character. Koberger's initial public defender says his client, who is eager to be exonerated, was arrested Friday at his parents' home after driving cross-country with his father on December 17th, a trip the attorney said was planned. The suspect was studying for a Ph.D. in criminal justice at Washington State University, less than 10 miles from the crime scene. Undergrad Austin Morrison says Kohlberger was a teaching assistant in one of Morrison's classes. He sent us this screenshot showing a paper Kohlberger graded back in November. I did, you know, see him in class. He introduced himself. Uh, he did seem rather quiet to me. According to the university, police have executed search warrants at the suspect's office and on-campus apartment. Neighbors there who do not want to be identified say he was polite and seemed normal, but often made strange noises, like he was cleaning or using tools in the middle of the night. It suggests very loud sounds, so it kind of wakes us up. And then sometimes I just think, okay, what is happening? Before his time at WSU, Kohlberger graduated with a master's degree in criminal justice from DeSales University in Pennsylvania. 
the owner of a nearby brewery, telling NBC News, staff had added notes that would pop up when Kohlberger's ID was scanned. Hey, this guy makes creepy comments. Keep an eye on him. And Dana, we know Kohlberger is being held at a jail in Pennsylvania. When could we see him brought back to Idaho? Well, according to his public defender in Pennsylvania, the earliest could be Tuesday night. Once Kohlberger is brought back to Idaho, he says it could take a little bit longer to figure out what's going to happen next. Back to you. Thanks for watching our YouTube. Sorry, Mike, I put you on the screen. Uh, people people got to look at you for a second. I was going to say something, but I wasn't sure what you, what you were yeah. doing. <laughs> but uh, so, again, his parents, you know, I mean, could anyone even imagine the horror of this? One of your children do something like this. And, of course, you feel for the families of these victims. And you want to believe that your loved one is, uh, is innocent, but... Uh, it's not it's not looking that way you know it's uh it's looking that you know the evidence is mounting up even though it's circumstantial the evidence is piling up so you know one of the things that was really so prevalent early on in the investigation was uh we heard it on every single news channel we've heard uh, them, them come out of the woodwork everywhere and that, that was the behavioral analysts everyone was talking about his behavior and what his behavior meant, what is what the of uh, the um, the order of the killings in the in the homicides, what the murders, what that meant, and how people were reading into this. And we realized from our work on the police department, I don't remember ever in my whole career on the NYPD us ever using a behavioral analyst to uh, to help capture a murderer. Not saying that it's never been done in NYPD history. I think they did did that with the uh, the son of Sam. Yes, I think David Berkowitz. I believe they probably enlisted that uh, in 1995. I believe it was in the in East Harlem. There was a serial killer by the name of Aaron Key, and if uh, Scott Wagner's in the chat, he had one of the homicides involved uh, with that serial killer, and I believe Aaron Key was the first. DNA hit in New York State history that linked murders together. And that was the first time in New York State DNA linked together a serial killer with not just murders, but also rapes. He was also a serial rapist. You have nothing to say about oh, that? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> 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 now the uh, the the be you know I think the public's uh, perception of like the FBI's behavioral analyst unit from that TV show Criminal Minds, you know they're going around in a, in a jet private jet and they're parachuting into these investigations with small towns and other departments and other states, and they are got their hands their sleeves rolled up and they are working with the homicide detectives and they're they're putting together bits and pieces as they go. And there's always someone with a computer and they're typing something in and boom, a little tidbit of information comes up and they use it. And, you know, that's not how it works. It's, it would be great if that's how policing was. That would be wonderful. That would be exciting. That's not the way it is. Um, they're, they're good in a serial kind of murder situation, a serial rapist situation where you're trying to figure out patterns 
you know, that sort of thing. Because, you know, if you've got a rapist, you're wondering, uh, is, is this part of a, a series of rapes? Anytime you get uh, or you get, you know, two or three similar MOs in a particular area of a city, you're like, OK, maybe we have a serial rapist. You, you, would, you would really behoove yourself to kind of, you know, find out. Is there anyone who can help us kind of predict future movements? Um, I remember the famous case of the uh, Zodiac Killer. They were even consulting, uh, you know, behavioral analysts trying to figure out what clues, he, what they, what they trying to interpret clues he was leaving. But they're probably not going to solve the case. It's going to be the the footprint. The, I'm sorry, the fingerprint. It's going to be the DNA analysis. It's going to be, you know, that sort of thing. Witnesses' statements. Um, but yeah, it's it's great information, uh, but it won't. They're, they're not standing right next to the homicide detective as he's making the arrest. No, that's not happening. Absolutely, folks. If you're looking for a fantastic defense attorney in the New York metropolitan area, then Joe Murray is your man. Joe Murray is a retired member of the service, a retired police officer, and a fantastic defense attorney. If you want to reach out to Joe. You can reach, you can get him on a cell at 718-514-3855. Email him at joe at jmurray-law.com. And his website is jmurray-law.com. Joe Murray's not just a fantastic attorney. He was a great police officer. He's also a huge supporter of the Police Off the Cuff podcast, one of our biggest supporters. And we really appreciate him. And there's a picture of him saying, what do you want from me? You know? <laughs> I like that. I like that picture. Great picture. Uh, so, Mike, what are we going to expect to be released tomorrow? And what do we expect out of this car, out of the processing of that white Hyundai? That could be one of the things we're talking about, uh, smoking gun evidence. If a hair or fiber, anything belonging to one of the victims, or the dog for that matter, is found in that car, very, very powerful evidence. Yeah. I think what you're going to see when they release information tomorrow on the white Hyundai, the search of the white Hyundai, it's going to look, I imagine it's going to look, the list of information that they've gotten is going to be very similar to what you see from Brian Koberger's Washington State University apartment. There's going to be hair. There might be a piece of clothing, a sock, a glove, a pair of pants thrown in the back trunk, you know, of the car, that sort of thing. There won't be anything exciting yeah, but it will be, again, a list of items that were taken because at this point, when they're going through and they're analyzing that car, they're not like they're, it's not the same thing as going through his home where they're looking for dark clothing or, as, you know, or uh, in Pennsylvania home or it's Washington home. They're looking for flashlights, certain things like this, whatever they find in there, whatever clothing they find, it'll be listed. It probably won't be a lot because he probably had started cleaning that car. But um you hope that they will find hairs, maybe some material, you know, that sort of thing. And it will be listed. It won't be very exciting. It'll be listed, you know, items one to nine, one to 20, whatever it is. And unfortunately, we won't yet get the uh, results of whatever had been taken from that uh, car, that Hyundai, with the search warrant. That, like all the other search warrants, you know, we haven't yet gotten the results. Those results probably won't be given given to the press until actually maybe the trial itself and we'll hear about it like you know we hear about other famous trials that are going on now like the Murdoch trial but so it'll be a teaser 
and it's good for analysis, but um, you could hope that there may be dog hairs, but you're not even sure if, when they take the hair, if they know it's going to be dog's hair, because that would be a real tease that maybe if there was dog hair found in his car and he doesn't own a dog, well, where did the dog hair come from? We could assume that it's the, the dog uh, in, in Idaho, but uh, it'll be a teaser. But again, the, dog, the dog's name was Murphy. Was Murphy. Murphy. That's it. Thank you, Murphy. Uh, it's, it'll be a teaser. But again, we won't know exactly uh, whether or not the results uh, the results of the test done on the Mike, Mike what kind of I, what kind of Irishman are you, Mike, when you can't remember the name of a dog named Murphy? Murphy, I know, right? That's a great <laughs> name. That's a great you name. You know, folks, when we talk about this case, we always like to um, not forget, we don't like to refer to it as the Idaho Four or the Quadruple Four. We like to name them by name. Uh, and we pray for the families and the souls of Ethan Chapin Zaina Canodal, Madison Mogan, and Kaylee Gonsalves. And they're why, they're the reason why law enforcement and the whole world really was glued to their seats in regards to this case and why law enforcement spared no expense in solving this case. And, you know, folks may think that, oh, quadruple murders happen. They do not happen all the time. Trust me, you know. And on a college campus, this is so, so, so rare. You know, when we're not talking about, you know, active shooters, which unfortunately is a, a reality of this day and age, we're talking about someone going into the homes of these students and killing them, slaughtering them while they, while they were in bed. And that's what the uniqueness and the horror of this and why we want to cover this case and bring you the truth as to the investigation and, and, and what's going on and do it from a, as we say, a police perspective and try to leave sensationalism out of this case, Mike. Yeah. I think that the, uh, the public should be, you know, uh, always uh, remembering the, the four young people who were slaughtered in the prime of their lives. Uh, it was a terrible thing, but also to have, try to find some, you know, a little bit of mercy for the Kohlbergers too. There's no evidence at all. And if there was even a scintilla of evidence that they knew or aided their, their son in trying to hide any sort of criminal evidence, that they would have immediately been arrested by the FBI. Their family is hurting too. And their lives have been flipped upside down also. Every family involved is hurting. And uh, a little bit of mercy would go a long way for that family too. A prayer also for the Kohlbergers. You know, I think it's hard for folks to think of the um, the parents of the the perp in this case as uh, as having mercy on them and praying for them. I mean, I do. I I'll admit it. I have a hard time. Yeah. Some some way deep inside you, you think that maybe some way they raised him created this monster. You know, and at least that's the way I think. And maybe that's incorrect thinking, but that's the way my brain is wired sometimes. And uh, I would have a hard time, you know, feeling sorry for them. I'll just put it right out there, frankly, and say sure. that, you know. Sure. Yeah, I think they, they've they known for years that Brian is a little bit different from a lot of the other kids. Socially awkward, doesn't have a lot of friends, probably very quiet, introverted. Um, and maybe they believed that at some point he would somehow age out of it as he got more mature, uh, finish school, 
found a calling for his life. Maybe they were hoping for that, hoping for the best. And like all parents do, you always want to think the best of your child. And so, and I think their um, press release, um, I think was, was appropriate under the circumstances and is expressing their deep desire to see, you know, that their son just be treated fairly by the criminal justice system. Absolutely. Cheated no more. There's no way the parents wanted this of their son. I don't believe that either. I don't yes. believe that for a second. Uh, Foxy Doxy, you know what's killing them, wondering if they could have done something. Sure. Yes. Pauline Buckles, I'd like to know when he bought the knife or if he showed it to anyone. Um, she did no more right, Mike. They hoped he would turn the corner for the better and a better life. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, guys, uh, well, Richella Pranzo, every parent looks for promise for their children. Absolutely. Richella, when I'm sure your children all show and have exhibited promise throughout their lives with such great parents. Um, so guys, that's basically, um, our show for tonight. Uh, we weren't trying to sensationally pick this apart because really when you think of there's just nine items on this uh, search warrant, could one of them be, well, the DNA swab, that's mm -hmm. probably the most important item. Yes. Are any of these items going to connect him to the crime scene or the crime scene to him? That remains to be seen. Tomorrow, the results of the vehicle and the other items they took out of the house in Pennsylvania in the search warrant, that could be, you know, real important evidence. We don't know. We don't know yet. Mike, final thoughts. Final thoughts uh, for the for the for your viewing public. Uh, again, just be patient and um, and know that that and have faith that the investigation was done as professional as any investigation could have been done. Very professional. Great work by everybody and. Um, Hopefully, everyone will get justice in this case. Absolutely. Folks, I want to just thank all of our fans, all the subscribers, all of our friends. Thank you for tuning in to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. God bless and have a great night and be safe. One episode, just